Now, this is Box to Box with Rob Gilbert and Derek Dyson. Oh, what a goal! For Chemist Warehouse. Great savings every day. And Hoyt's Herbs and Spices. Changing the mood of food. Absolutely fantastic! Hello and welcome to Box to Box, the show that is everything football. Your Rob Gilbert and Derek Dyson to run the wheel over the past week in the world game. First edition news with Will and Van Dender and shortly then, first up, last week, we talked to former Matilda Amy Chapman ahead of the Matilda's self-declared line in the Sand Series against Canada. We discussed what Tony Gustafsson needed to achieve with the squad, whether he had uncovered, uncovered a team and playing style that would compete to the standard expected of Australia's women's football team at next year's World Cup. And sadly, the resounding answer is no. We are left with as many questions as answers after the Matildas won one half of four played, conceded three goals to one and allowed Canada to return home with the perfect preparation for the World Cup and a whole lot of confidence. While Australia are left to ask, do we have the right coach in place and can he find what is required to turn the squad into at least a competitive outfit as much as one that can contend to win the tournament? One of the best analysts of Australian football is Joey Lynch from The Guardian and ESPN. He knows the Matildas inside out. We'll talk to him and find out what he thinks. After that, Willem will dive deeper into the Matilda squad and where to from here now that they're back at uh, club level. And we'll also count down the days to the Socceroos' farewell matches against New Zealand. Then as our Celtic man from the Athletic, Kieran Devlin in Glasgow wrote, for 56 minutes, Celtic stood toe-to-toe with Real Madrid. For the first half an hour, they were arguably the better team against the European champions. But in the end, missed opportunities ultimately made Ange Postecoglou's boys pay as they watched Europe's most successful club step up and show Celtic what it will take. And it will take more than half an hour to win ties like this. We'll analyse the game with Kieran in detail. And, of course, we'll wrap up everything else in stoppage time with Derek as Michael takes another week off. Uh, Derek, he's um, he's, uh, back home uh, scouting about uh, for a couple of weeks before he heads back to Qatar. So... uh, Hello, Michael, But um, as you're listening. But Derek, how are you, mate? How's your week been? Yeah, it's been, been a good week, Rob. A very uh, full week when it comes to football. You covered it all there with uh, Matildas, Internationals, Premier League, Champions League, all the European leagues, uh, up and about, plenty of lines there. So once again, we're trying to cram quite a lot into a small space of time. We are, and... Um... Obviously, one of the, um, the the late breaking stories that caught a lot of uh, football uh, podcasts and pundits on the hop was uh, uh, the sacking of Thomas Tuchel at Chelsea. So, Willem, you've got all that uh, to get us started. Why don't you Why don't you get into it, mate? I do, Rob. Great to be back for another week. Let's start with Thomas Tuchel. They, you know, he has been sacked by Chelsea six matches into the Premier League campaign following Wednesday's one 0 loss to Dinamo Zagreb in the Champions League. It's believed tension between Tuchel and majority owner Todd Bowley grew over the club's transfer strategy despite the outlay of over £250 million in the window just gone. During his even 100 matches in charge, Tuchel led the Blues to the Champions League, Club World Cup and UEFA Super Cup. Derek, I know we're going to break this down a little bit later on in the show in Champions League, uh, why they lost to Zagreb, Southampton and Leeds uh, so far this season. But I just want to grab your first reaction when you saw the story because in some ways it was shocking and in other ways... It was the most predictable and unsurprising story ever, considering this is Chelsea. Yeah, I think you've summarised it well, Willem. Yeah, there have been some talks about Tuchel, even from pre-season when they lost 4-0 to Arsenal and things didn't look right, even then. Uh, So off the back of this uh, poor result that they've had in Europe, uh, the knives were out, but the thing we'll talk about later in 
stoppage time is was this all premeditated if there's a lot of noise out there that suggests that Tuchel was going to go regardless of that result but I think it just made that um, phone call that uh, Todd Bowley had to make to Tuchel just that little bit easier when it came yesterday. Champions League Real Madrid have kicked off their defence with a 3-0 win over Celtic, although the hoops faithful will have been buoyed by a strong first half. Ange Postacoglu described his side's inability to take chances as the fine margins against the game's elite. In the group's other match, Shakhtar Donetsk defeated RB Leipzig 4-1. Celtic's next four matches are against those two sides, so they need to get some points uh, on the board there, Rob. Uh, it's always interesting when Ange takes the uh, the step up to the, the stage, as we've seen uh, over the last 15 to 20 years, that there's always the debate, will he, will he just... Uh, uh, will he dilute his approach? Will he sort of go a little bit more conservative? Uh, this was uh, Scotland and, and Celtic's time to go through that very same debate, uh, but it was no surprise to us whatsoever as they went out in that first half uh, and bossed Real Madrid, really, uh, that that was the uh, the approach that Ange took. No, not at all. I'm really looking forward to talking to Kieran Devlin. And, and the one thing that, that's consistent with Kieran whenever we talk to him is that excitement in his voice as, uh, um, as a Celtic fan himself, as well as the, the man on the Celtic beat. Uh, obviously, they'll be disappointed to, to sit along Leipzig, RB Leipzig at the bottom of, uh, of their group after one game and and, uh, and to ship three goals uh, uh, after such a, a promising start. But... Uh, you know the the question. I think if it was asked to the Celtic crowd, would they rather lose three nil um, by playing the style of football that they played than uh, lose one nil and have parked the bus? Well, you know the uh, the response from the crowd at the end of the game was clear, and uh, and even uh, I think if you were watching the game, you would have seen that the Real Madrid fan uh, players applauded the the Celtic fans for their response to their home side, which uh, uh, you know from uh, from a, a club of rail stature is uh, well it seems to me to be the highest of praise great respect as well from the Celtic fans to Luka Modric as well when he uh, when he departed the pitch 37 next week and scored a, a beautiful goal he's going as well as ever Derek I'm not so sure if you saw the post-match embrace between Ange and Carlo Ancelotti there was a lot of respect there uh, but just that beautiful eyebrow raise that Ancelotti does so well to say yeah look we were challenged today but we are still pretty damn good yeah lots of respect I think Ange is not uh, a, a, a secret in management circles um, I'm sure that they both admire each other and they'll know each other from various events and uh, coaching events that they go to and yes we all love that that Italian raise of, of the eyebrow um, I think Real Madrid knew that they were in a game for those for those first fifty minutes, as as we said. But of course, the the class told at the end they were lethal over those two or three minutes that really decided the game. And as you said, Modric, a lot of respect there. The Scottish fans won't want to see him and the outside of his right boot anytime soon, because of course he did exactly the same thing um, to, uh, to, to Scotland recently as well. So. Um, yeah, a great game all round, I think, gents. Back locally, free-to-air audiences will have access to an extra game per round when the A-League men's season kicks off next month with Saturday evening and one Sunday afternoon clash to be broadcast on 10 Bold. Notably, all free-to-air matches will be ad-break free during play, resolving that issue that caused so much consternation last season. Separately, every A-League women's match will be available live and free on the 10 Play app, while Paramount retains rights to every A-League men's and women's match live and on demand. Derek, I wanted to get your opinion on uh, the aspect of that story that reads the matches are going to be on 10 bold rather than the primary channel. Uh, we know that these sort of secondary subsidiary channels, if you like, have been around for a long time uh, and that everyone sort of technically has access to them, but are people hardwired to flick over to those stations? Does that have a, a tangible effect? Got to be careful what I say here, Willem, because I, I work in television and of course I need to be 
very uh, pro pro anything that is to do with broadcasting and free to air TV. But I think being on ten ten bold, you're not quite in the graveyard, but you're certainly on the way there. That's that's not a place where a lot of uh, people's buttons end up going to, and I think it probably just says a lot about where ten see this ultimately. These um, the the these decisions are made purely financially. They're just looking to get the maximum amount of audience on their channel at any one time, and they've got to try and deliver the eyeballs that advertisers desire. And if they don't think that A League is going to do that for them, they're gonna they're gonna stick it on ten bold, and that's just the sad reality of it. I'm afraid. My apologies there, Derek. I did throw to you knowing you're the expert. I didn't consider the potential stitch up, so uh, apologies there. Uh, Rob, are you ready for an extended edition of World Cup Corner? This was always the idea that we'd start with one or two stories here and there, and mm. then as we go over the next couple of months, it's going to grow and take over the whole show. Yeah, absolutely, mate. It's uh, the the, the- Clock's ticking. When uh, I, I was listening to some of the Champions League coverage on the radio this morning, and uh, and and heard uh, the the conversation uh, around how many games there are before the World Cup starts, it, it really felt like it, it was it was around the corner. So you know, we're nearly mid September. Um, you'll be packing your bags pretty soon to head over to Qatar, Willem, and. Uh, yeah, no, I'm, I'm, bring it on, mate. I'm, I'm, I'm the sort of person that's happy to put up a Christmas tree in uh, October or, or Easter um, hot cross buns uh, the moment Christmas finishes. So, you know, I, I want to just soak it up for as long as I possibly can. All right, let's do it. Paul Pogba is in doubt for France's World Cup defence, having undergone meniscus surgery, according to Juventus boss Massimiliano Allegri. Juventus have said the surgery is a success, but Allegri has said he may not regain Pogba until January. That does seem, though, Rob, to be the most pessimistic viewpoint out there uh, the meniscus is a relatively minor one uh, as far as knees go. It was a concern in the off-season. He opted not to have surgery when he went from Man U to Juventus. Uh, it's flared up at training this week. So, yeah, he is, as they say, now on the clock. In other Pogba news, he's admitted he did contact a witch doctor, but not to cause injury to national teammate Kylian Mbappe, but instead to enhance the success of an African charity. Mbappe himself broke his silence this week, or Mbappe, as we call him on this program. (laughs) He said that he's contacted both Paul and Matthias, who's been stirring this all up, uh, and that he'd rather believe his teammates. So good news there. Uh, So hopefully uh, they can... Maybe not against Australia, but hopefully they can take the park at some point together throughout the uh, the World Cup defence because you do want to see the best players out there. Yeah, well, um, you say that. I'd say I'd be happy for Paul to stay at home and um, and visit his witch doctor uh, if it's going to weaken the French side and uh, give Australia a, a better chance. Pogba is one of those players that uh, he uh, has that uncanny ability to turn on his absolute level best when he pulls his national shirt on. And uh, you know, I think uh, any French side with, without him is um, is going to be uh, far more easy to handle. So yeah, as much as I'd like uh, from a purist point of view to see him play, I'd be happy if he stays home. Um, am I being um, too uh, too selfish there, Derek? Uh, not at all. I think you know it's you have to have the best chance for your team. Uh, I wonder though whether having Paul Pogba there might be better for Australia in some weird way because uh, you know there is that issue that he has with uh, Mbappe. He's maybe one of the more combustible and controversial members of the team. So maybe be careful what you wish, you wish for. Uh, Rob in that in that case 
Mm, good point. I guess what you're saying is if the witch doctor was going to make a, a, a brew of uh, of uh, toil and trouble, that one of the prime ingredients would be P. Pogba. Uh, I, I guess so. I guess so, Rob. Uh, be careful what you witch for. <laughs> uh, if you did call the witch doctor to uh, inflict injury on a teammate, that is the definition of karma that's now come back around to him. Uh, another one that we touched on last week has had a development. Carlos Quiros will lead Iran to a third successive World Cup after his reappointment at the expense of Dragon Scotchich. Scotchich oversaw 15 wins from 18 games, but his time was blighted by persistent rumours of friction with players, including Porto striker Mehdi Toremi. Under Kirosh at World Cups, Derek, Iran have a record of played 6-1-1 and drawn 2. I was in a cab in Sydney this week and I had uh, an, a great Iranian driver called Eddie. He's been here for a long time, but still very much an, an Iranian to his core. And he was telling me how excited he was about Iran's prospects in the World Cup. He was explaining geographically how close uh, Iran is, that it is one of only Qatar's main allies in the region and that the people will be coming over in their droves and it will be very much like a home game every time that Iran play. So uh, he's very excited. Edge called on an earlier show that they could be the dark horse. So let's keep an eye on Iran. They're in the England group, remember. Isn't that amazing um, what you can learn in the back of a cab? You know, these... um these cabbies that uh, you know that, that's their that's their uh, pulpit, and they're more than happy to share. And sometimes, you know, with respect to our beloved cab drivers and Uber drivers, who uh, we're all very grateful uh, are out there. Um, when you get a guy like that to to give you a bit of an insight that you would just never get anywhere else. Um, you know, particularly to a football um, boffin like yourself, Derek. They just hear the English accent and, uh, and that's it. And I'm very <laughs> humbled that they hear the English accent as opposed to the, my other country, mm-hmm. uh, Australia, of course. But yeah, uh, thanks, Eddie, for the smooth driving and negotiating that horrific traffic in Sydney and for also giving me a few tips on Iranian football. I feel a lot more uh, involved in that now. Edge, who has spent a lot of time over there in the build-up, as we know, has said it's going to be a magical World Cup, particularly from what those North African and Middle Eastern nations are going to bring. And of course, Australia are playing Tunisia and Edge says that is going to be very much a, a Tunisian home game. Finally, Rob, your wafer boss, Alexander Seferin, has told Football Talks International Congress he is certain Spain, of, uh, Spain and Portugal will co-host the 2030 Men's World Cup. Seferin stated we will do everything to help two countries that are passionate, live and breathe football, and have good infrastructure. The nations failed in their joint bid to co-host the 2018 tournament. Uh, it's expected Spain will submit 12 stadiums and Portugal three. Okay, all right, good news, Willem. Uh, oh, after the break, we go. We, we had Michael Lynch on last week talking Spurs. That was a good conversation for Michael. He was very happy, very happy to see Spurs doing well. Uh, this week, his son Joey um, is going to talk to us about some news that's not so good. We were so excited uh, after uh, uh, three minutes when uh, Sam Kerr set up Mary Fowler, who was just so clinical. Uh, Tony Gustafsson seemed to have unlocked the mystery of, of how to get the best out of the Matildas. The first half, they you know, they pretty much bossed Canada and uh, and it all looked like uh, things were going to, uh, to head in the right direction. That was until the collapse of the second half, where it's just pretty much... Uh, um, the the worst nightmare for not only Gustafsson but for everybody that, that follows the Matildas that they were only able to to, to step up and deliver a world class performance for half a game and then uh, give the exact opposite uh, for the second half. Joey Lynch watches the women's game as closely as anybody we know. Uh, we're going to break it down with him and find out if we're uh, uh, exaggerating the scenario, the situation. Um, is there hope? Um, well, let's stick around after the break. Joey Lynch on Box to Box. 
Oh, Hoyt's. We love Hoyt's spices on the show, don't we? We love cooking, we love eating, and our friends at Hoyt's Herbs and Spices are always on hand for tips and advice on how to add flavour and taste to the kitchen and change the mood of your food. Derek, do you like uh, hot wings? Oh, I can't get enough of hot wings. If I see them on the menu, I'll buy them. Oh, I will every time. What about you, Willem? Yeah, no, hot wings. Absolutely. Oh, hot I wing just, up. Oh, I just love a nice blue cheese sauce to dip my hot wings into. So, look, the easy way, you can make hot wings anytime you like. They're probably the cheapest cut of chicken you can find. The little wings, the little flats, and the little drumettes. To make the spice rub, this is how you do it, okay? You've got your pen. Cayenne pepper, garlic granules, celery salt, caster sugar, mustard powder, and then you need some vegetable oil to mix it all together. That's going to be your spice rub. If you do it at home, it's going to cost you a lot less than if you go out to a restaurant. You're going to get a delicious result, and then you're going to get your blue cheese with some, well, maybe S&W or Whole Foods mayonnaise. And uh, look, you're in for a treat. Uh, watching the football with a, a big barrel of uh, buffalo wings, courtesy of Hoyt Spices, is uh, just the kind of uh, football uh, meal I'm more than happy to uh, to set myself up with. And remember, refill any of your empty spice jars with Hoyt's value packs. You'll be happy with Hoyt's, Coles, Woolworths, and all good independent supermarkets. Box to box. Can you believe it? For Chemist Warehouse. Great savings every day. And Hoyt's Herbs and Spices. Changing the mood of food. And this could be the most crucial goal of all. Yes, this is Box to Box. Now, last week we had Amy Chapman on the show. And uh, look, uh, we, we were, I think, equal parts optimism and equal parts pessimism. And we, we knew that at that stage, uh, um, the Matilda's uh, recent record under Tony Gustafsson wasn't good. But um, but we were hoping that uh, his explanation that it was all around the preparation and all around building the depth and a, a range of other uh Convincing arguments, uh, he was convincing himself at least, um, uh, that they were the, the precursor to what we were going to see, and that was a, a strong Matilda squad against a world-class outfit on uh, two uh, stadiums at Suncorp and uh, at the Sydney Football Stadium's Alliance, the brand new stadium for that matter, and and we'd all leave or say farewell to Canada with a lot more confidence that the Matildas were on track. That's not what happened. Uh, they won one half out of uh, four. Uh, they conceded three goals, scored one, and if any side left that um, that double header with confidence, it uh, it was not the Australian side. Certainly, Canada went home with a lot of confidence. And a man who watches the Matildas as close as anybody in Australia is Joey Lynch from the Guardian, ESPN, and also from his very own uh, podcast, which we'll talk about a little later on. And we welcome Joe back to the show. But um, am I being too? Uh, too pessimistic about this whole thing. Um, uh, you know, we, we've got to call it out, don't we, Joe? Yeah, it certainly feels like this series perhaps marked a bit of a, a turning point in the perceptions of the Matildas when you are looking at this squad. I mean, really thinking about it deeply, uh, I mean, we haven't really had too many opportunities to see this team in action since the Asian Cup. There was obviously the series against New Zealand, which was highly, highly promising on a performance level, which I always try to pay more attention to than a results perspective on this, despite the fact that they had to come back to win it very late against New Zealand in that first game. I thought they played very promisingly. They had the series in Iberia against Spain and the Portuguese, but that wasn't really this side. None, None of them played, so... 
this was sort of effectively one of the few times we've seen them since that Asian Cup um, experience where they would have crashed out, where they crashed out in the quarterfinals and had this, had they not been hosts, would have not automatically qualified for the World Cup. And it's just not getting better, I think, is the problem. The, the progression isn't, from a performance perspective, it's not getting better. It's certainly not getting better at a rate that one would anticipate we would be seeing this side based on its current trajectory. I can't see them taking it to the world's best in July. Has the rest of the world caught up with Australia and taken over? Was our uh, top 10 ranking for as long as it was under, you know, Alan Stadich for all, all of that uh, uh, period of time where we were sitting in the top 10, um, was that a false reading of where Australia were at? Are we not as good as we think we are? Uh, what we saw against Canada was a very well-organised, very well-drilled um, and um, and skillful outfit who were able to to take their chances when they come when they came. Uh, that, that's we saw an emotional response from Australia in that uh, first half of the Sydney game, um, which seemed to lift but couldn't sustain for for a, uh, a full game. Are, are we as good as we thought? Need to separate that into two things. Obviously, yes, you cannot ignore the rising tide that is European football and even the rest of the world's football when it comes to analysing the place of the Matildas within that. These other nations have woken up, started investing in their women's footballing programs, this footballing culture that has existed in these countries, some of them longer than Australia itself has existed as a country is now being that focus is now turning onto the women's game and that is inevitably going to reshape reshape where the Matildas lie in the grand scheme of things. It's inescapable. But when you're looking you can you can acknowledge that and recognize that and say that yes, maybe we are falling down the pecking order and there's you know very little that we could actually do to stop the bags of money and history and culture of Europe and the like doing that. But you can, you can acknowledge that and you can also acknowledge that this Matilda side still isn't playing as well as they could be regardless of the opposition that they're facing or regardless of what other countries around the world are doing. It's not just a – you can discount the oppositions entirely and you can ask, are the players in Australia uh, – is the talent at the Matilda's disposal being deployed – being utilised, being positioned in a manner that allows them to operate as the sum of their parts or potentially as a greater than the sum of their parts. And that's where my concern is. I don't give a, I don't give a damn what the rest of the world's doing. I want to see the Matildas being put in the best position to do the best they can and at the moment, I'm not really seeing that. Is Tony Gustafsson the the man equipped with the ability to to put um, the finishing touches, the polish on that squad, so that they they look as organised as they need to be? That uh, that their uh, their their style is a clearly defined one, and that uh, it's consistent. And uh, and whether they win or whether they uh, they they lose, that they're competing. Um, at a high level and a consistent level with a consistent style. We haven't seen anything yet that would give me significant hope, give me significant faith as 
um, which are two you know concepts that have suddenly become part of Tony Gustafsson's vocabulary um, in recent weeks and recent months. Yes, you can expect as a national team certain levels of faith and hope from supporters. That's what comes with being the avatars of a nation's footballing culture. However, I haven't seen anything yet that would give me sufficient confidence that we are going to see this turned around and we are going to suddenly see the players deployed and utilised in a manner that allows them to take it up to the rest of the world. Because you talked about it there, Rob, in your assessment of the Sydney game about how in the first half the emotion rose, there was a lot of high energy, their press was fantastic. Um, It felt, as I've written in my piece for ESPN, analysing the series, that felt like what Gustafsson ball was supposed to be. High energy, it's what he says. It was high energy on the front foot, attacking, taking it to the opposition. Canada didn't have a shot in that first half, but for the very same reasons that worked so well in the first half, it was also why the second half went the way it did and Canada got on top. Because inevitably, if you are going to focus your game plan on high energy pressing, high levels of emotion, high levels of those sorts of things there's going to be a drop-off. No team in the world can press at a high intensity for 90 minutes. You certainly can't do it at a World Cup when you're backing up every two, three, four days. There has to be an underpinning of that. And what I think I saw in the second half was the energy levels dropped, the pressing wasn't intense as it could be, and then you saw the underlying weaknesses become exposed once again. The midfield composition was something that I don't think he got right in either game. Katrina Gorry, Emily Van Egmond and Mary Fowler. I said this on my podcast, The National Curriculum, after the Brisbane game. I think when it comes to Mary Fowler or Emily Van Egmond, you need to pick one because they're similar players. They operate better, higher up the pitch. You need to pair, because it looks like Katrina Gorey has established herself as the deep-lying holding midfielder, the regista, not so much a defensive destroyer as somebody that is going to pull the strings from deep and be the creative fulcrum for the side. If you're going to deploy her in that way, I feel as though you need somebody that is comfortable more comfortable dropping back to join her and is more comfortable receiving the ball in deeper positions and then knocking it forward to whomever you decide to play as the more advanced midfielder, be that Mary Fowler, be that Emily Van Egmond. And I think we saw in both halves of the Brisbane game at Lang Park and the second half of the game at Sydney Football Stadium, that connection in the midfield wasn't there. I was perplexed why we didn't see somebody like an Alex Chidiak get more of a run than what she did. Her attributes would have maybe fit there. Maybe you decide to play Claire Wheeler as the six and have Katrina Gorey as that link-up player between the, as more of an eight. Um, so that was, and that problem, I think, not only does that go some ways to explaining some of the attacking problems we saw in the second game, especially Sam Kerr, um, really struggled um, against the Canadian defence and, maybe struggled, but she really had issues with 19-year-old defender Jade Rose who could go with her physically. And when you've got a defender that can, you know, approximate you on a physical level, you need something other than long balls, which is sort of what the the game descended into. So that was one of the problems attackingly that the midfield composition and the way the midfield went about things didn't help. But 
it's just as much defensive as well. We talk a lot about the defensive foibles of the Matildas and the like, and there are issues with the back four, and obviously they were missing Ellie Carpenter and Steph Catley, but we have to qualify that by saying Canada were missing most of their first-choice defences as well, and they adjusted. But a lot of the defensive foibles, it's not just the back four, it's where the Matildas lose the ball. And if your midfield composition isn't right and your midfield isn't operating as well as it could be, you lose the ball in worse positions and that puts your defence on the back foot before they even have a chance to do anything. And that, I think, is low-key one of the reasons that the Matildas have struggled defensively, not because of anything the defence is doing, although they can't just wash their hands of responsibility, but it's also because the midfield isn't is losing the ball in positions that put them under the cosh straight away. Joey, two issues here for Football Australia at head office, and they, they go hand in glove. It's the performance of the team, and it's the management and the building and the, of the momentum of the tournament uh, next, next year. You say that you're not going to predict the future, and I'm not going to ask you if they're going to sack him, but it seems like for a long time they've wanted to have this consistency in Phil Gustafsson to work in terms of the team for the uh, the success and the stability of the tournament. Do you think there is a, a fear and a potential that maybe this quite significant wobble with the team uh, could make uh, sort of head office feel that they might be losing tournament uh, momentum uh, for the broader public around the tournament as a whole? I think if it's not happening at headquarters, I'd ask why it isn't because this this is a once-in-a-lifetime opportunity. You should be going in there every day and trying to think about how we can best utilise this and um, and how we can best create a long-lasting legacy from this. We've talked about 50-50 participation split, massive investment from government in new facilities, not just at the elite level but the community level and the like. And you have to credit Football Australia. They have secured um, investment. I think it's hundreds of millions of dollars in investment already based off the Women's World Cup. However, you, talk, you hear a lot about the massive success that the Women's Euros was for England and about how that was a cultural, culturally defining moment. England won that tournament. Is that as culturally defining moment as it is, say, if they go out to Spain? in that game that where they got pushed real hard and it was looking really wobbly at times, it probably is changes the culture, but nowhere near as much as it did having won. So I think that has to be a concern for Football Australia. Now, do I think, you know, maybe this is me going back on my things about predicting the future, but I don't think Football Australia will move on Tony Gustafsson, even if they are having that feelings. I think I came on this show after the Asian Cup. And I said, A, philosophically, I don't like changing coaches midstream because I want federations to have to live with the consequences of their actions. But it's also, if you were going to change coach, it had to be after the Asian Cup because it's you're not just changing a coach. You, If you sack the coach, what happens then? You have to go out, you have to recruit a new coach, you have to pay the old coach's contract out. Almost certainly you have to replace the support staff around um, the new coach, let them bring their own people in. Potentially that means having to move on um, the other assistants, which you might have to do in this case, given how integrated Gustafsson has made his support staff into the process. That takes time, that takes money, um, even before you actually get the new coach involved in the team. And I, I don't see there being enough scope to do that now. So um, moving forward, I think they'll will have Gustafsson at the World Cup and as every Australian footballing person just has to hope, which 
I, I, I am hoping. I want him to succeed. Um, that they do find a way. They do find solutions. I mean, footballing observers can potentially think of them, but at the end of the day, we're not in the circle. You know, I advocated for somebody like a Chidiak to get a go, look at the midfield competition, but I'm not in the circle. We just have to hope that Tony Gustafsson and his support staff find a way to get this team playing at a level that would su- you would suggest they are capable of with a Ballon d'Or contender leading the line, players playing at some of the biggest clubs um, and brands in Europe, exciting talent like Mary Fowler coming through. You would hope that they find a way to bring those players together and get them playing the way that they can. Joey, um, we've taken too much of your time up, mate. Uh, thank you very much as always, mate. And, and if um, you're listening to us, then you obviously like listening to podcasts. If you want to listen to an outstanding podcast, uh, make an effort to jump on uh, to your podcast catcher and uh, look the look up uh, the national curriculum, Joey, um, and uh, uh, you'll get a, a huge dose of football well, every single week. So, Joey, just a, a little bit more. We're talking off air about, uh, about the podcast. Yeah, so um, as you mentioned, thanks for the plug. It is the national curriculum. It's myself and a number of other journos um, from around the country. We've got News Corp's Nick DeBarno, Stats Performs, Josh Parrish. We have um, uh, Channel 10 commentator Teo Palazzeri jump on on occasion, Stan Sports' Nick Stoll, special guests um, along the way. Um, we stream live. Um, we try to stream live every Sunday, although this coming Sunday we might have to kick it back given that um, most of us are actually involved in the NPL Victoria Grand Final broadcast mm-hmm. that night. But we try to stream live on our Twitter account, at TNC Football, as well as the ESPN Australia and New Zealand Facebook and YouTube pages. You can jump on and leave us a comment and we'll try to engage with all of that. Uh, Nick Stoll uh, loves to engage with the comments and questions, so he does that. But if you can't jump on live, we are uh, released across all um, podcasting platforms at some point the next day to catch up with that. And we go long, but I promise you uh, it's worth it. <laughs> well, we listen, Joey. So you've got a couple of listeners on, on this podcast too, mate. So, hey, um, thanks again for, for coming on, mate. And, um, and we'll talk to you again real soon. Yeah, happy to do it. No worries, Joey Lynch, uh, one of our favourite analysts of football. You uh, can hear him on his podcast, The National Curriculum, ESPN, The Guardian. You can read his copy. Okay, stick around. We're going to talk more soccer. Is more Matildas after the break. Uh, there's only well, a couple of weeks left before the soccerers play their farewell games against New Zealand. That's next on Box to Box. Box to Box. Can you believe it? For Chemist Warehouse. Great savings every day. And Hoyt's Herbs and Spices. Changing the mood of food. And this could be the most crucial goal of all. Yes, this is Box to Box. Good chat there with Joey. I mean, he's a great analyst. Um, he, he really knows how to dig deep into the, um, the well, lift the hood um, and and give you an analysis. Um, uh, where do the Matildas go from here? Well, I think uh, time will tell. Um, well, you've got a little bit more news on those very Matildas and our Socceroos. But uh, you've got, um, well, Edge isn't here, but you, you do love to have a bit of banter with him about uh, uh, about the clock ticking to Qatar. And uh, is there time left for somebody to get themselves organised to, to, to head over to the World Cup? Uh, you've uh, you've taken the words right off my page, Rob. The clock is very much ticking, but no, there is still time. And uh, don't forget, uh, registrations of interest are also open for the 2023 Men's Asian Cup, which is definitely going to be a trip abroad. Football Australia this week confirmed that they're not going to submit an official bid. Uh, that was only ever a bit of a late concoction anyway, but they're not going to bid in that. So there will be a trip there with the Green and Gold Army and the 2024 Paris Olympics as well to cheer on the Matildas. So head to 
gjtravel.com.au. Rob, we are two weekends, really, from the Socceroos, a couple of friendlies against New Zealand, which are going to be the celebration uh, of the centenary of uh, those initial uh, internationals that they played. There's been a lot of hope and sort of hunger for a centenary kit, a replica kit, and it's been released... Uh, and for those that don't know, we had Trevor Thompson on a little while to take us through a bit of the history. Uh, it was the first Socceroos side uh, comprised only of players from New South Wales and Queensland. So they wore the New South Wales blue top and the Queensland maroon shorts. Uh, I was hoping that it might have a, a little bit of a mixture of both the uh, the replica top, Rob, but it's only New South Wales blue. I can't wear that. Well, um, I, I guess we, we did talk about this off air, the fact that um, that it was largely a, a New South Wales and a Queensland side. So it doesn't make any sense to me, even as a, a born and bred uh, New South Welshman who loves seeing the uh, uh, the sky blue when uh, state of origin time comes around. It's not exactly the kind of strip that uh, is going to appeal to, to football um, supporters around the world to uh, to wear uh, proudly, um, you know, if you're a Victorian no. South Australian bit of maroon trim I was hoping for maybe the collar or on the uh, on the sleeves but no not the way they've uh, they've stuck very true to the original uh, design from a hundred years ago let's have a look at a couple of the Socceroos Connor Metcalf is a man making a charge for the World Cup and if he doesn't quite make Qatar he'll definitely be at that Asian Cup I'd say and he helped St Pauli pick up a point with a late equaliser against Greuther Firth it was a two-all draw so he scored his first goal for the club. Uh, unfortunately, there was an earlier own goal from Jackson Irvine, uh, but very encouraging that Connor is making the most of those early opportunities off the bench. To the Champions League, Matt Ryan was in goal for Copenhagen as they shipped three to Borussia Dortmund, while Aaron Moy and Nikita Rukovica came off the bench for Celtic and Maccabi Haifa, respectively. Uh, unfortunately, both in lo- uh, losses. Back to the Socceroos quickly. Not quite sure what's going on with Mobil at Cadiz. Uh, he's apparently tried to seal a deadline day loan move away from the club, despite only having just uh, signed and debuted for them. Uh, as a result, he was left out altogether against Celta Vigo. Uh, one man who did get a deadline day move was Tyrese Francois. And Rob, I know this is a guy that's well and truly on your radar. He signed that long-term deal with Fulham. He's captain of the Australian under-23s in Uzbekistan, uh, and he's going to get some regular football in Croatia uh, on a season-long loan with Gorica. So it's a little bit off the beaten track for uh, for your typical Australian uh, mm. career, but good uh, good signs that he uh, is going to be uh, playing a bit of football, you'd think, considering that Anthony Callick, another Australian, uh, has just left, who was uh, in a similar position in midfield. Yeah, well, Tyrese Francois, the Campbelltown boy, is only 22 years old. He's um, he's had uh, um, limited minutes um, in, in the last two iterations of uh, Fulham's uh, uh, Champions League uh, uh, appearances, uh, Champions League, Premier League appearances. Uh, so, look, I guess we don't hear a lot about Croatian club football, but y- you'd have to think that um, that a um, an opportunity to play regular first team football in a country with the pedi- the football pedigree of Croatia could only improve him and uh, and and do better uh, for for his career than sitting on the bench, um, even if it is with a Premier League club. Very much so. Uh, to musket watch, make no mistake, this hasn't quite been making the headlines in Australia uh, over the last little while, but this is well and truly on uh, for Kev and Yokohama. They've got eight to play and they've got a three-point lead on Kawasaki. So it looks very much like a race uh, between just the two at this point. This Saturday, the Mariners have Avispa Fukuoka, Kawasaki host San Frecci. So eight to play, three-point lead. Uh, I wanted to just give uh, the NPL and the NPL women's uh, grand finals uh, a little bit of attention. Joey just mentioned that uh, that it is a, a bumper Sunday here in Victoria. There was a little bit of controversy, though, uh, midweek. 
some uh, some ructions at head office. South Melbourne reportedly threatening to uh, to boycott the final. Uh, it had been slated for Lakeside Stadium, which is of course their ground, uh, but this was ruled out given it's not a neutral venue. Uh, South then kicked up a fuss when the match was moved to Caroline Springs, uh, of course the home of uh, help us out, Rob, the home of where the Australia Cup was living. Sunshine George, uh, yes, Sunshine, yeah, yeah, Sunshine uh, George Cross, yeah, Sunshine George Cross, of course, um, the uh, the original home of Kevin Musket, the great Maltese club. Spot on. Uh, if, yeah, they've, they've found a way to uh, to placate everyone. They've said that with fifth, with our uh, five thousand expected, this was going to be too small. So uh, they've placated all parties and gone uh, to Olympic Village. I'm not sure that uh, I'm not sure that the uh, expected crowd was actually the reason they got that done. But anyway, uh, it is going to be for one pm. Calder United against Bulleen in the women's grand final, and South Melbourne against Oakley from six thirty in the men's. Uh, around the country quickly, the MPL Queensland men's grand final is on Saturday evening between Gold Coast Knights and Brisbane Olympic. Uh, the MPL South Australia men's grand final is on Friday night between Adelaide City and the Adelaide Comets. Uh, over in the West, the men's grand final will be also played on Saturday night uh, between Floriot Athena and Perth Red Star. Uh, and a reminder as well, Rob, that we've got the Australia Cup to look forward to this week. Two of the most anticipated semifinals, mm. uh, I think, in the competition's history. Sunday afternoon, Sydney United, uh, Sydney United hosting Brisbane at Adenza Park. Uh, and then Wednesday, 7.30, Oakley against MacArthur and I think all fingers crossed uh, from everyone in the uh, Australian football community outside of MacArthur and Brisbane of course uh, that we're going to see our first state level club uh, in the granny Okay well you watch this as close as anybody I know you're always out there uh, uh, watching Oakley when they play Um, what is your expectation do you think that will happen? I don't. Uh, I don't think they'll get the job done simply because MacArthur have looked so good and they're probably one of the uh, the least followed A-League clubs, particularly in pre-season. So maybe the uh, spotlight hasn't been on them. But Dwight York uh, is, of course, the manager and they've been hitting uh, four goals, six goals. They've been doing it pretty comfortably. So I think they'll get a good, uh, they'll get a good contest. Uh, Oakley will only be three days on uh, from the, uh, the grand final. So it's a huge week for them. Uh, there's been a lot, of, uh, a lot of spotlight and a lot of momentum uh, around the club, but I think it might just be a, a job uh, too far, considering it's only three games, uh, three days off the back of a grand final. I think maybe Sydney United against the Raw uh, is a better chance, particularly if they can take that long and take it to penalties uh, as they did against Western United. Okay, well, hopefully we'll uh, we'll see one of those NSL clubs. All right, well, um, hey, uh, before we go, I mean, this is the Socceroos Matilda segment, and um, and I did ask uh, Joey. A question about um, the leadership of the Matildas. Um, I- I'm interested in your opinion. I mean, uh, do you think that Sam Kerr is the right uh, player to, to um, captain the Australian national side? I don't. I tend to side with you, Rob, and it's just the ups and downs. It was the the suck on that after the famous win uh, in 2019. Then it was the uh, the real dejected disappointment uh, at the end of the Olympics campaign. Um, there's the uh, there's the on field demeanour as well. Uh, during the games, um, as you said, the hanged on look, that sums it up pretty well, probably the sort of uh, throwing the hands up as well at points. So um, I'd like to see, I think Steph Catley was a pretty good nomination. Um, but again, we're not in camp. Um, thought Joey put put forward a pretty good argument as well. Um, I think the issue is, uh, is more the manager than the captain. Yeah, look, I tend to agree. I think uh, uh, that is the bigger issue, but I do think that um, that they're you know not that far uh, apart from each other. And look, Derek, um, just from a leadership point of view, um, w- w- just how important for you um, when you when you're competing at that highest level? Um, my view is that that this th- these are the one percenters you need to get right. Um, what's what's your view? 
Yeah, I think every every aspect of your team needs to be needs to be looked at. I, I think in sports like football, the captain role is definitely put on a pedestal. I think there are other sports where it's not seen as particularly significant. I know in US sports, there maybe isn't even a captain or the, the captain's ban, so to speak, is passed from player to player. But it, it is important in football. And look, I can only reflect on you know, my own football, domestic football team, Arsenal, and how the armband has been carried around by players that I don't think have been suitable for the captaincy role. And that's coincided with some of Arsenal's worst seasons, finishing eighth twice in a row in recent years. And it's not a surprise to me that the armband goes to someone um, like Odegaard comes in and suddenly the team starts to improve. Mm So once again, I've made a question about Australian women's football about Arsenal but I think it illustrates that my point that great players don't always equal great captains mm. you know talismanic uh, players um, can can certainly um, become good captains because because they're kind of seen as people that can inspire but sometimes it's just best leave your best player as that your best player mm. and give it to someone else who's maybe more in the center of the pitch either center back or center midfield has a better view of the game and maybe uh, they can inspire themselves. So, yeah, I think it's a valid point. Yeah, and, and Tony Gustafsson, if you're listening, um, if uh, if you wanted to make a big statement and you wanted to to shift the dynamic in in the squad and uh, and give yourself uh, a chance in Australia a chance, then uh, then maybe that is a decision that he needs to make uh, uh, to to let Sam just be Sam to to uh, to to do what she does best and that's just play football she clearly doesn't like media performing so don't ask her to do it um just get somebody else who 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 wants to do it and who's got some enthusiasm and then and just let sam you know rip the band-aid off and um and let her just uh, to to do what she can uh, do best and that is play up front scoring goals for australia anyway um that's my hobby horse um i'm interested i was interested to hear your thoughts boys so thank you for those okay after the break we're going to shift the dial a little bit we're going to uh, bring uh, uh, celtic back to uh the front of the conversation kieran devlin from the athletic he is uh, one of our favorite athletic journos he's a, a passionate celtic man but uh, he's also uh, uh as close to the club and the beat as possible uh, it was disappointing to see uh celtic lose to real madrid but not the fashion in which they played that game We'll talk to Kieran after the break uh, about how he saw it um, live from Celtic Park on Box to Box. Hey, hey, Chemist Warehouse. That's the jingle. You know it every time you hear it. You can save big every day at Chemist Warehouse, but right now you can save big on vitamins. Derek, what's your favourite vitamin, your go-to vitamin that's always in your uh, bathroom cabinet? Oh, vitamin C, um, vitamin D, definitely. I don't get a lot of sunlight. Uh, because of the full-on job and a little bit of uh, fish oil as well for Mm. uh, for Mm. ligaments, etc. Yeah, yeah, nice combo, Willem. Um, I think you're usually into the the protein powders at Chemist Warehouse, but uh, you're a vitamin guy too. Absolutely, particularly the uh, the boost, the things you drop in your water at the start of the day for a little bit of uh, for a bit of a little bit of hydrolyte and a bit of hydration. So yeah, I'm all about the boost from uh, from Chemist Warehouse, and I'm in need of a top up. Yep, and I don't start the day without my Swiss Men's Ultivite or my fish oil. Uh, but if you want to get in and top up on your vitamins, you've got to do it now because right now 
Wagner Super Bio Magnesium, 100 tablets, $9.99. They'll help you sleep magnesium, really good for sleep. Save 35% off the everyday low, fire, low price, 45% off the recommended retail price on Blackmore's Bio C1000. There for you, Derek, 150 tablets for $24.99. And save 30% off the recommended retail price of Nature's Own Super B Complex, 75 tablets, now $17.99. There's Microgenics Sound A Sleep, 60 capsules. If you're not getting a good night's sleep, get a hold of those $9.99. That is better than half price. Chemist Warehouse, the great savings are every single day. Box to box. Can you believe it? For Chemist Warehouse. Great savings every day. And Hoyt's Herbs and Spices. Changing the mood of food. And this could be the most crucial goal of all. Yeah, this is box to box. And we're about 48 hours away from, well, what was... For Australians, at least uh, the most anticipated Champions League match in, in many years with Ange Postacoglu leading Celtic out at Celtic Park against the European champions, Real Madrid, the most successful European team of uh, well of all time. Uh, and for 56 minutes, as our next guest wrote, Celtic stood toe-to-toe with Real Madrid. For the first half hour, they were arguably the better team against the European champions. And we welcome Kieran back to the show. How are you, Kieran? I'm good. I'm good. Thanks for having me back. It's always a, always a pleasure. Yeah, not at all. And uh, um, you were obviously at the game. You saw it uh, for yourself. From all accounts, there was an incredible atmosphere. Um, we all knew that Ange wouldn't go out there and park the bus and uh, and just try to snatch a draw in front of the home crowd. He declared that he was going to go out and uh, compete, and, and that's exactly what they did. Yeah, absolutely. I think, I think there was maybe some... I think because we've been um, conditioned <laughs> as Scottish clubs over the years, when we do these competitions, we are used to you know dominating domestically, playing brilliant football domestically. But when it comes to these, we maybe go go on our shells a bit, and we just stick ten men behind the ball, counter attack, or rely on set pieces. <laughs> but Postecoglou absolutely tore up the rule book <laughs> when it comes mm. to what Scottish teams traditionally do in Europe. I think even. Um, I think Lotta Matthaus was interviewed earlier this week saying, oh, you know what you're going to get with Celtic. They're going to be, <laughs> oh, they're going to be direct. They're going to you know, defend deeply. It's like, well, welcome to Postacoglu Celtic. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and, and, it would, and it worked. You know, I think there was important lessons to be learned, I think, but this is a team still in its European infancy. You know, it's, it's a team that still has a lot of experience. It needs to be grow, it needs to become more experienced on a European stage, but that will come with time. I think that's, but at the same time, it was so exciting and so encouraging seeing Postacoglu's football thrive against one of the best teams in Europe, technically the best team in Europe last season. Yeah, and, and compete, um, and but for a couple of chances, uh, really should have led uh, um, going into half time. Uh, Kieran, I guess before the boys um, get into some of the more technical details of the game itself, the broader question from a Scottish football point of view: um, Are you seeing? I mean, look, far be it from Rangers to ever want to copy what Celtic are doing, but uh, uh, are, are you seeing a sense that, that that attitudes within Scotland are gradually beginning to shift to say, look, you know, maybe we can uh, take. Uh, the lessons that we're seeing learned at um, at Celtic from Ange Postecoglou and and replicate it with other clubs um, deeper down the uh, the ladder. I I wouldn't say yet. I don't, I don't think so yet. I think the um, Scottish football is very firm foundations in terms of loving physicality, loving you know <laughs> six foot three guys who lump the ball forward to target men. I think it, it might take time, um, but I do think he has he has 
starting to change minds, even if those minds are quite stubborn. I think that it's going to take a gradual process, but I think this Champions League campaign will be very interesting on that side of things. Because, as I say, even even you know the likes of Hearts are United going into the Europa Conference, they will just stick again, stick ten men behind the ball, try to counter, and it's not worked for them. It's not worked for decades for Scottish teams. So I think if if Postecoglou is actually saying, hold on, we've actually got decent players here, we should play to their strength, as his team did on on Tuesday night, I think that could potent, potentially change minds. But as I say, we're a very stubborn country, so I think it might take something quite spectacular to change it but this team are more than capable of that Kieran uh, have Celtic fans perhaps uh, cast a, a cautious eye over the others uh, matching the group now and seen that Shakhtar Donetsk put four past Leipzig was there perhaps some uh, feeling that maybe Shakhtar were the least of the concerns but the group now maybe appears a little bit tougher uh, than what it did two days ago yes definitely <laughs> I, I do think people were but I think there's maybe everyone got maybe slightly carried away as you do when you're in your first Champions League group for five years and you're playing brilliant football domestically maybe we're saying oh you know we should be a cinch for third maybe even compete for second I do think maybe the Shakhtar result changes minds a bit I think they've obviously got that really talented young young forward um, as well as a former Celtic player Marine Schved who scored two um, against Leipzig um, so I think maybe that has revised opinions but I think the way Shakhtar I watched the extended highlights I haven't watched the full game of the Shakhtar game but the way they play I think is going to make for a really exciting game next week the way they they play with as as proactively as Celtic do, as as a you know as aggressive pressing, as ambitious and bold on the ball. So I think it was going to be a brilliant game. Uh, I do think they maybe um, it would have been nice if they got this uh, a Leipzig a dysfunctional Leipzig team as their first game. Was the goal Celtic? I mean, because um, maybe I think Mar- Marco Rosa appointed this morning, he might get them better organised. So I think I think it's. All the four games between Leipzig and Shakhtar, they're going to be very competitive and I'm really looking forward to them because as at the very least the first half of Tuesday night suggested, this team has players and a system that can probably compete with the best in Europe. And it is a little bit of a tough draw that you have had uh, in terms of when the matches have been fixtured. So you've obviously started with Real and you're going to finish Real at the Bernabeu, which is an even tougher uh, assignment. So it's across the next four games that you do need to bank the points if you are going to progress. So is there an expectation that that can be done? Have you been fully swept up in the uh, the sort of Postacoglu uh, love and expectation or is it still a little bit tempered that uh, it, it is tough and uh, maybe there isn't that expectation to get through this time around. Um, I think it swings wildly across the fan base. I think there are, you know, it goes from fans expecting to finish second to some maybe a bit expecting uh, to finish fourth and it being a difficult campaign. I think I'm in the middle. I do think I, th- I think third is a, is a I think second would obviously be incredible and this team are more than capable of it. But I think third is a more realistic target. And I think because this is still. You know, they've been brilliant domestically, but this is still a team who's a work in progress at European level. And I think, uh, I'm not sure if you guys have seen uh, Ange's post-match interview from the, the Madrid game, where he was like visibly distraught about how the game panned out. You know, he really wanted something from that. And I really hope that instills itself in the players and the fans, because we're not here, you know, to just have a great atmosphere and lose 3-0. He wants to win games and he wants to prove that his football can can thrive in the largest stage. So I think that's quite compelling. I think maybe next season, maybe where we see it succeed in the Champions League, uh, touch wood that we're back in there again. But I think that I think finishing third this year and making a run in the Europa League, I think that would be a really interesting challenge for this team in its current state. 
but I, I think we could probably compete at Europa League level. Saying that, <laughs> second and going to the last 16 would obviously be incredible as well. And I just wanted to ask you about a, a couple of uh, new signings. We've sort of known from an Australian perspective uh, the first couple of transfer windows of guys that Andrew's brought in, Cameron Carter-Vickers and Joe Hart, we'd seen through the Premier League. Uh, and, of course, the three guys that came uh, from the J-League, uh, the four guys, uh, we've, we've seen them. They've been on our radar uh, as Australians as well. But Saeed Haksabanovic came on the pitch against Real Madrid and Oliver Abildgaard as well. What can you tell us uh, here in Australia who perhaps don't know too much about these guys, both having come from Ruben Kazan? Yeah, so I think Celtic have been monitoring the situation in Russia closely. I think Ruben were relegated and they, with the FIFA sanctions, they're in a bit of a difficult situation, which means they got Hagsabanovich for less than £2 million, so a bit of a bargain for a player Ruben spent £6 million on um, a year earlier. And about guard, it's, it's, it's a bit of a weird contract situation about payments to Russian teams and everything like that. That's makes his um, contract situation and where he'll be next year a bit more up in the air, but there is a very good chance he'll stay a bit longer at Celtic. But in terms of players, Haksibanovic, he is a very exciting winger. I think he is quite similar to, to Jota, more than Abaddon um, Maeda, who are more out-and-out goal scorers. Haksibanovic is very, very creative, very technical, very quick, um, good at pressing as well. I think he's an ideal Postacoglu um, player, whether that is on the wings or even as one of the two number eights a bit, uh, in midfield. And then Abodgaard is very interesting, I think. Um, Postacoglu said he adds height when most of our players wouldn't even get on the rides at Disneyland. <laughs> um, so I think he is more of an out-and-out defensive midfielder, that, that classic number six. But he is good in the ball as well, which is important to Andrew's system. So I think we're... we're and I do, importantly, I think both those signings are European level players who raise the standard of the starting eleven, who can help this team push on to the next level. And I think especially when you you've got a front three of Hagsabanovic, Jota and Kyogo, and then a midfield of if you have Abildgard as the guy who's who's sitting, and then that allows Callum McGregor to push up to beside Rio Hatati, for example. I think that's a really exciting front six if Hagsabanovic and Abildgard are as good as we hope. You mentioned Jota before, Kieran. He's a player that I'm increasingly interested in. He uh, picked out an amazing, glorious crossfield ball in the Real Madrid game. There's probably few players on the pitch that could have seen that pass. So for those that are not watching Celtic too closely, like what kind of player is Jota? And is he one of those where, unfortunately, you want him to do well, but you don't want him to do too well because people in other leagues might might start taking notice of him. Yeah, I, I think he's a special, special player. I think he's almost like weirdly underrated. <laughs> as, as ridiculous as that sounds, because everyone acknowledges he's one of Celtic's best players, but I do think he isn't genuinely could progress into an elite-level attacking talent at a Champions League level. You know, that's, that's what his potential was when he was coming through at Benfica, when he was more highly rated than... Uh, Atletico Madrid's Yao Felix, where you know Jota was the star of that brilliant um, Benfica team, and his his career stalled a little um, as he entered his twenties. He he didn't really know what he was doing, but he became you know he found a home on loan at last season at Celtic last year. But there was still some you know he was clearly very talented, but he still it was very obvious he had levels to go. And this season he is absolutely <laughs> excelling at them. I think I believe he has eight eight goal contribution, eight goals and assists combined in six league matches at the weekend. And he almost have a, had an outrageous assist against Real Madrid when, as you say, his crossword ball 
a badder 20 year old in his first Champions League game understandable with that he, would, he finished nervously he, he didn't have a great game but as he is 20 years old and it's his first <laughs> game in the European Cup against the European Cup winners so I think that's very understandable when it comes back to these guys are still in their very early stages of their European progress as a team but I think Jota is an outrageous player and if they managed to hold on to him after this season, I think it would be a remarkable achievement because I think he will probably, if he continues his current rate of development, he will probably be Celtic's record sale, whether that's next summer or the summer after it. And just talking about one more player, this is a predominantly Australian podcast, Aaron Moy. We often see him sitting there on the bench with his glorious bold, bold heat and he occasionally comes on. He's, he has featured in... Uh, most of the matches, at least as a brief substitute this season. Do you, does he have a strategic role for this team? Can you see his minutes being increased by Ange, or do you think it's a potentially one where yeah, he's really just going to provide that strength and depth and he'll come in as and when players get injured or, or rotation is required? I'm not sure. It's been, I think it's been interesting and boys always... Um, he hasn't started in the league games. He started the, the cup game against Rodgers County, in which he played. He played well, um, but he hasn't started in the league games yet. But Ange, he's always one of the first people Ange turns to. Um, so I think naturally he he played. Um, he featured with the um, Australian national team, the Germany internationals. But before he arrived, he'd played basically no club football since January. So I think it was just getting him back up to speed in terms of the intensity not only of club football but Ange's, Ange's training sessions the, the the style of football um, that he likes to play so I think it, I, the, the volume of Moy's minutes even if it is as a sub to me suggests that Ange wants him to play a bigger role as the season goes on I think now it's basically two games a week until the World Cup I think Moy will see a lot more game time I think there'll be a lot more rotation and I think it'll be interesting you know he had, for most of his career he was playing a bit further forward but as with Australia, um, I think post the Coglu season, more as you know, uh, Callum McGregor's understudy is the number six, or Abu Guard's number study, somebody who can, the deep lying playmaker who just sets the tempo, directs play from further deep rather than somebody who might be trying to create chances in the final third, um, which is a role that suits him. And is, you know, he's, he's played in Britain, he's, his physicality is great, his range of passing is great. So I, I think. Um, maybe you might be familiar with the, the player near Beaton, who was at Celtic last year, who played a similar role. And I think Moy might fulfill that, that similar type of role as someone who is a bit more defensively minded, a bit, a bit more cautious on the ball, but also someone who can just come on and control things, just calm things if the game is getting quite hectic. Someone, I think, Postecoglou looks to Moy as someone who can come on, calm things down and just Assert, reassert control for Celtic again. Yeah, and finally, just uh, wrapping up Celtic's season ahead, you've had a bit of time now to to look at them in the league and, and a bit in Europe as well. What is the expectation for the season? What does progress look like? Obviously, the, the recent demolition of Rangers, although you would still say it's early in the season, that's a strong sign that that Celtic can be, to be fairly confident in that league. Is it really going to go down to what they can do in Europe, which will demonstrate progress this season? I think so, and I think Ange thinks so. I think, as I said, I think his reaction after the game, the Real Madrid game, was so telling, uh, just how badly he wants to, to prove himself in Europe. Um, I, I, I think the expectation domestically is to win the league again and maybe one ups. 
I think that would be a brilliant season. But I do think what this Celtic haven't won a European knockout tie after Christmas since 2004. They have severely underperformed in Europe for decades now. Uh, I think the players, players like Callum McGregor, James Forrest, who have been at the club for decades, they 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 recognise the importance of that and how how frustrating it is for fans. But I think I think that in combined with Postecoglou wanting to to really show that his style of football can work at the highest level and it can succeed, I'm quite optimistic that you know I I think a, a good season would be finishing at least third in the Champions League group. And then making a real fist of the Europa League, I think that would be a good season. I mean, even if it's just one in one tie after Christmas, that would mark progress. But you know, this is a special team. Who knows what they can do if they get if they find the rhythm in Europe? Well, Kieran, it's uh, a little surreal for those of us who've, who've watched Ange's career um, over time, from his days at South Melbourne to uh, the days heading up the uh, the Socceroos, and then falling out with the head office and uh, qualifying Australia for a World Cup and choosing not to take the team to Russia, uh, packing his bag and his family to head off to Japan and, and winning the J-League and, and now uh, uh, playing or managing alongside the, the, the greatest clubs and the greatest managers uh, in world football. It, uh, it's fantastic to see and not only just great to watch but but also the style of football. So um, I think uh, there's always been a lot of Celtic fans in Australia but uh, but they keep on growing uh, as the, well, the myth and the legend of Ange just continues to grow uh, around the football world. Yeah, yeah, I think so. I was actually, um, I had a, I had an Australian friend when I lived in London who's had no attachment. He was a Spurs fan with no attachment to to Celtic, but he now subscribes to Celtic TV <laughs> because he's uh, to, just to follow Postecoglou more closely. So I think mm. I think you're spot on. Excellent, mate. All right, Kieran, we'll stay well. We'll uh, we'll catch up with you again in a little while and uh, and see how um, the uh, well the, both the uh, the domestic competition and um, and the next uh, few rounds of Champions League football go. Brilliant. Thanks so much. Thanks for having me again. Excellent, Kieran Devlin from the Athletic. He's on the Celtic beat and always generous with his time for us. Okay, stick around after the break. Stoppage time. We've got a bunch more to get through before we wrap this thing up. Box to box. Can you believe it? The Chemist Warehouse. Great savings every day. And Hoyt's Herbs and Spices. Changing the mood of food. And this could be the most crucial goal of all. Yes, this is Box to Box. Great chat with Kieran Devlin there. This is stoppage time. Before we get into stoppage time, though, um, I think it's important to announce, I know I flagged this last week, that um, uh, that uh, Derek, Willem, Damien, Edge and I all sat down together. We've been doing this show for well, 354 episodes now since 2015. And we thought we're seeing a lot of things happening in podcasts, football podcasts and entertainment podcasts around the world. And we thought it was time to, to sort of shift the dial a little bit. So uh, from next week, we're going to change things around a little bit um, and give you more box to box, really. Um, we're going to try and drop more content into your feed um, on a regular basis. And, uh, and we're going to ask you as our listeners for some feedback um, so we can engage you more in the show um uh, we're going to drop our normal box to box podcast but it's going to be earlier in the week it's going to be on a monday night so you'll get it in your feed on a tuesday morning and then we've got two uh, additional episodes we're going to take stoppage time this segment out and create it as its own isolated podcast and maybe go a little bit longer and get through some of that meaty content that we don't always get through so that's going to be called box to box stoppage time and then we're going to do a feature interview a little longer we've all put our names into that and we'll ask you for some feedback as our listeners on who you think we should talk to and we're going to release a podcast uh, most weeks um, if not every week called stoppage time offside so uh, 
Derek, you're in the content caper. Um, it's the sort of thing that most podcasts are doing and, um, and we're hoping we'll sort of uh, extend our, our audience and give them more uh, Australian-based football content to listen to. Yeah, I think getting the main show on a Monday or Tuesday is going to be really helpful to have that recency to the weekend. So I think that will help people in terms of continuing the conversation um, over from those results. And yes, I've often... Well, we've often struggled with stoppage time, which is getting longer and longer now. It's taken a life of its own. We know our listeners, as much as they love the Australian game and Matilda's Socceroos, etc., also love their European football and what's going on there. And but what, what better way of doing that is to extend it out a little bit and give it give it its own give it its own podcast. So uh, yeah, looking forward to seeing how it all shapes up. Yeah, well, well said, and Willem. Um, thoughts from you, Matt? Yeah, I'm particularly excited about box to box offside, uh, Rob. It's going to be probably a twenty to twenty five minute hit each week with uh, with a notable person from either the Australian game or international. We'll vary it up and do our best to get a uh, to get a, a broad sample size. Uh, and yeah, it won't be so much focused on. Uh, news and current affairs, but more a reflection on uh, contributions and, and life spent in football. So, yeah, box-to-box offside uh, is particularly exciting for me. And credit to Damo, who's um, sitting there behind um, his um, his panel there, who who, who uh, gave some suggestions and guidance that sort of pulled everything together. So, Damien Tardio from the esteemed Tardio radio family. If you're in Melbourne, you certainly know who, who they are. Tony Tardio, Damien's great dad, who is one of the voices of Melbourne radio and uh, uh, a passionate man himself. And we are going to get Damien in front of the mic uh, and we're going to be uh, um, at least um, uh, asking for his views on, on some City uh, R football uh, from time to time as well. Okay, that kicks off next week, uh, our, our new uh, content um, uh, piece for stoppage time and, and the extra uh, elements that we're going to bring you. But this week is, well, it's the last edition of stoppage time in its current iteration. Um, so I, I know, Derek, um, you know, there's some weeks, I mean, you're the most prepared guy I know. You usually got your notes ready. You do plenty of research. But um, I, I think I called you earlier today and I asked you what that noise was in the background because it sounded like some sort of mechanical uh, sound and it was uh, it was your notes going into the shredder after the, the news from Stamford Bridge. Absolutely, yeah. Found out via the group WhatsApp group, uh, and and saw the news about Tuchel, and of course, yeah. I mean, I did say earlier in the week this was my provisional lineup because I always know that things do change, particularly with Champions League now. European football starting to kick into gear, but you know, who says the Champions League groups stages are dull? There were loads and loads of talking points. Thankfully, Rob, we're not talking about. Liverpool this week you've you've got away with that one at least for another week and my moment of the week uh, was the, the moment when Orsic the uh, beautiful attacking forward for Dianamo Zagreb went storming through the center of the the uh, Chelsea defense uh, the new signing for Fana looked like he was running through treacle a beautiful chip finished an awful start for Chelsea um, and I'd already had that in my notes but then of course we hear that in his 100th game uh, for uh, or managing Chelsea and in the new owners 100th day Tuchel was brought into the training ground at Chelsea ready to dress down his players after a disappointing result there was no one there he was told to go to the boardroom to do a call with the owners overseas and he was in 10 minutes later he was walking out the door no longer the manager of, of, of Chelsea. And once again, uh, even if it isn't Roman Abramovich, the new owners taking a very similar line. They they are not shy about getting rid of a manager that uh, isn't 
isn't uh, delivering the goods and the feeling around all the commentary there is that uh, he wasn't their guy that he was on borrowed time and maybe if he had uh, had a, a brilliant start to the season that might have um, given him a stay of execution but his demeanor all season has been has been a pretty poor Chelsea uh, um, you know it wasn't a good performance uh, in the Champions League a tournament that often it provides them some sucker even if uh, the Premier League results aren't going as well they often perform well in this tournament and yes Chelsea once again are looking for uh, another manager, Rob. Yeah, and I, I referred earlier on to uh, to one of the other clubs um, that uh, that uh, Todd Bowley has a significant interest in, and that's the the LA Dodgers. And uh, uh, the, uh, the the manager at the LA Dodgers, fifty year old Dave Roberts, he's a former uh, player himself for the San Diego Padres. So he he was signed in twenty fifteen, and and has a reputation as a as a real collegiate man manager um, who uh, uh, has uh, has got as much interest in in, in developing the players as individuals and uh, and communicating with them as, as getting a result on the field. So um, they've won a World Series championship under his watch, um, which is the, the you know the the highest of uh, of um, accolades um, awards uh, or competitions that the American baseball. Uh, uh, Competition has has to offer. So, uh, Bowley would clearly have seen you know some analogies through um, his experience with the Dodgers and uh, and and as you said, um, Tuchel was not their man. Um, he is a cranky bloke as a rule, um, when particularly when they lose. And uh, it seems like I know we talk about uh, managers losing the dressing room, but they did seem, according to all accounts, of the management and ownership that is have taken the the temperature of the dressing room and um, and. And, you know, some of the significant players, you know, wanted him out and he was out. Well, you said cranky bloke. Yeah, absolutely. He's been showing that more and more. And certainly this season, he wasn't happy. I mentioned it off the top with the pre-season defeats at Arsenal where they were humbled 4-0 and it was a bit of a chastening moment. Uh, Tuchel obviously had that run-in with Antonio Conte after the the two-all draw with Spurs. I mean, Chelsea played well, probably should have won that game. He received a fine and a one-match ban. Uh, He was fined again for slating referee Anthony Taylor, uh, for suggesting that he shouldn't take charge of Chelsea matches uh, again uh, after his side's 2-1 defeat against Southampton, which was a shock result. He said he's deciding to toughen up and show a different mentality. Uh, and then, obviously, the game th- this week, he said his he, uh, his team weren't aggressive enough, strong enough, and he just seemed bereft of ideas. Uh, but you also have to temper that with, you know, what Tuchel has actually done. And just let's look a little bit like on his legacy. I mean, of course, he did the most unbelievable thing, which was, deliver the Champions League so soon after joining the club and, and very much against the odds. And then you just got to think about what he did last year, you know, in, in terms of all last season, the crisis that engulfed Chelsea with the departure of Roman Abramovich. There was no money. They uh, couldn't sign players. Players were being let go because they couldn't offer any contracts. They closed the club shop. He still managed to steer Chelsea into the Champions League and and some kind of sem- semblance of respectability. So, I think there's got to be you know something to be underlined there to see that you know he did actually contribute uh, quite a lot. And as you called it off the the top, Rob, you know they they spent um, they're the biggest spenders this season. Uh, Chelsea don't have a director of football, and you know you'd have thought that 
uh, Tuchel was probably the person they were coming to with all these signings, whether it be Raheem uh, Sterling or Koulibaly and Aubameyang, who, who who we mentioned as well. So it's a very a very strange situation. Apparently, Tuchel pleaded to be given more time, but I think the Americans have shown a steely side and were not going to be swayed. And 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 uh, as we said, they'll be looking very quickly for a new manager because there are plenty of games coming up. And uh, the the name at the top of uh, of the list appears to be uh, Graham Potter, who uh, has done some great things with Brighton Hove Albion uh, over recent times. Uh, uh, other names we're hearing uh, that are available at, at, at the very least are uh, Maurizio Pochettino, um, Zinedine Zidane seems to be waiting for uh, the French job to become available. So you wouldn't think that he's... Uh, uh, are likely to be a, a candidate. Um, thoughts? Oh, I was more just going to throw up a uh, throw up a, a theory on the money, Derek, because it's the most perplexing part of it for me. I mean, you mentioned that he wasn't their guy and that he's a cranky bloke, and that's more than fair enough. I can understand that, but why why would they then go out and spend two hundred and fifty million, uh, which for Chelsea standards broke their uh, their record uh, single window spend? And I think maybe, I mean, it's a very expensive carrot but maybe it is to show that whoever it is that does come in uh that this is despite the new ownership and all that turmoil that you mentioned over the past uh a uh, six or ten months or so that this is still the same uh chelsea and we will still back whoever comes in financially with a big uh with a big wallet so i'm not sure who it is that's going to come in but maybe that is uh the sort of enticing uh sort of reason behind what is for me the bizarrest aspect of this story yeah it's interesting william because yes uh, i think the owners were definitely looking to make a statement that despite the end of the Roman Abramovich era, that these guys were still going to continue to spend and spend in large quantities. I've seen other um, other owners of clubs, even big clubs, being slightly more circumspect or prudent uh, with, their, with their signings. And Potter is an interesting candidate. I think I described him to Rob on the phone today. He has the name of a bank manager. He's, he's not the sort of person or name that you would expect being linked with Chelsea. And to be honest with you, I don't think the um, the splashing of the cash is really the thing that's going to attract Graham Potter. Yeah, he's got the opportunity to join up again with Mark Cucurella, his player who was at the Brighton training ground a few weeks ago, now at Chelsea. Um, but Potter is a, player, is, a, is a manager who likes to be in well-run, well-structured football clubs. That's why he's thrived so much at Brighton and at other places in his in his career and Chelsea are probably at the moment one of the least well-run football clubs uh they don't have a director of football they've cleared house with a number of uh, uh significant senior figures leaving the side and if I and if I was Graham Potter yes there's the Champions League yes it's a definitely an enormous setup the uh, step up the caliber of player that he will encounter there versus where he's at with Brighton uh, is certainly going to be attractive. And yes, I imagine his wages will uh, increase as well. And and I think it is great and respect to Chelsea for finally looking outside of the typical pool. Some of the names that um, were being banded about there by Rob, the, the Pochettino and the Zidane and the like. And, and have we always talk about the Premier League promoting managers from within, so to speak. And I think Potter has earned his earned his chance. But I wouldn't see it as clean cut or clear cut that he's already packing his suitcase and uh, heading up the uh, the A23 or whatever it is up to up to London to start that job. I think that uh, Bully and the others will have to convince him that there will be a structure in place and that he'll be able to 
put his put his very unique stamp uh, on this team. Uh, I was originally in this segment going to talk about Leicester City, and maybe we can boot them into next week. But they're another um, team with a manager under pressure, obviously with with uh, Brendan Rodgers not not tearing up trees this season. He's been linked with the Chelsea job too. Uh, maybe that's who Brighton will look at next or someone else because Brighton is going to have as, as just as big an impact on them as, as it is on Chelsea because he's uh, doing a terrific job there. And I think Brighton will, you know, knowing them, they'll have thought very carefully about this exact um, scenario that, you know, they let players go at the right price and price and they don't seem to get any uh, weaker or, or worse. So I wouldn't be surprised if they know who they're next uh, man or woman is to take over the job. But um, I don't think it's a fair complete Potter to Chelsea. Let's see what happens this week. No, it doesn't feel like it does that there's been, I mean, even though it was a pretty sudden decision, you, you shared a, a, a podcast from the, the Athletic with um, with Liam Toomey and um, and, uh, and David Ornstein, who, who who broke the story in Chris Sutton hosting, the BBC's Chris Sutton hosting, and, and that they, in, in a very short period of time, seemed to have a, a real... Um, a, sense of of just how difficult it's going to be to get Potter to to make that decision because he's a he's a manager on the ascendancy and uh, and why would he take a, a job at a, a chaotic club that even though they're under uh, a new management um, he's just renowned for sacking coaches if they don't even, even if they do get a result um, uh, seems too cool I mean what more could he have done short of won the Premier League well yes and I think there's managers like Ancelotti who delivered Chelsea the double got sacked uh, Roberto Di Matteo delivered the Champions League got sacked uh, Mourinho delivered the best period in the club's early history with of the Rambachira got sacked eventually. So twice, the, twice, yeah. So the the culture is there. And look, fair play to you, Willem. You called this last week. You had, you had your crystal ball out. You knew we were going to be talking about Chelsea this week. You must have got something on the grapevine that we we didn't know. But yeah, more more to talk about with Chelsea for sure. But hey, let's um wrap up with our other two regular features, guys. Game of the week. Um, you know, I, th- I think for that one, it was uh, the the other the other game in in uh, in Group Group F that was Shakhtar Donetsk. We yes. mentioned them mentioned them earlier, and they 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 won four one away at Leipzig. Leipzig, of course, no no pushovers. Like they looked superb despite having two weeks of two weeks of preparation for this game. They haven't played at home since twenty. 20- 14 key players have left over the summer because they weren't able to to keep to keep hold of them they've defied the defied the odds even i think getting to this to this uh this group stage so i think my game of the week uh has to go to Shakhtar Donetsk well done uh, great start, and, and I'm sure we'll keep an eye on them as we go, gents. And coach killers as well. Um, Dominic Tedesco, the RB uh, Leipzig manager, was shown the door after that result. So, uh, uh, now outstanding for the people of Ukraine um, that uh, Shakhtar Donetsk can uh, can get that kind of result and uh, um, and and lift the country. So, look, that was um, was for me the clear uh, game of the week, club of the week. Willem, do you have any other thoughts on that? Uh, I've got a, a team, not so much of the week, but a, a team of the month, and I think it's got to be Manchester United, who are flying under Eric Ten Hag, four under the bounce now, and a uh, an impressive win over over Arsenal. Who, and I will admit, Derek, 
denied an opener to Martinelli that I think should have stood. It was a very, very soft uh, foul on, on Christian Eriksen in the build-up. So I think that game could have played out a little bit differently. But I think Ten Hag is getting it right. It's uh, It seems like a, a calm, measured build. Uh, he, he's getting his, his signings right. Anthony slotted in, uh, scored in his first match. Casemiro should be ready to go now that the fixtures pile up with Europa League stuff as well. I think Rashford and Sancho, uh, obviously rather sort of enigmatic and up-and-down players, but they're being more involved in their uh, scoring and, uh, and and setting up assists uh, on a weekly basis. So, Derek, they've got Palace, Leeds, Everton, City and Newcastle to come in their next five. So if they play their cards right, they could win four of those. Uh, so I think things are, are building nicely under uh, under Ten Hag, and I've uh, put a cheeky twenty on them for the uh, for the league this week, which I don't do very often. Uh, but you just never know. They certainly they're on my short list before the Shakhtar. I did I did actually have them in my early notes, Willem? That 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 turnaround of form after the two defeats, as you said, culminating in uh, beating. Uh, you know, a big rival in in Arsenal and a team that were flying at the top of the league. So, you know, maybe the vindication is there for the hierarchy that they got their man uh, eventually, and he's now starting to uh, make his imprint on the team. Um, but um, talking about team of the week, um, can anyone tell me who is top of Bundesliga at the moment? Top of Bundesliga. That would be. I, I've quickly looked, so I know who it is. But um, well, I, I wonder if our listeners Freiburg. at home know. <laughs> SC SC Freiburg atop, and we weren't calling that at the at the start start of the week. They beat Leverkusen three two away. They are joined top with Dortmund on goal difference, and one ahead of Bayern, who uh, slipped up at the uh, uh, again for and again a, a slip for them is a draw. Uh, in Bundesliga, I've got a soft spot because I have been to a Freiburg home game. They are in a new stadium now, the Europa Park Stadion, a 35-seater uh, stadium. But it's a beautiful city on the edge of the Black Forest right there, literally. It's, uh, you're walking about the town and it's it's quite quite the spectacle. The, uh, the nickname is the uh, Breisgau uh, Brasiliana, which literally the local name for the area Breisgau the Breisgau Brazilians is their nickname so mm-hmm. clearly the thing they've got a little bit um about themselves and um yes uh, uh well done Freiburg that is a very you know for a team of such small means that is a an excellent start to the season and yes as we say Rob we just don't want to be Premier League Champions League centric on this show we do want to call out the other leagues when we get a chance and of course, the uh, former club of Socceroo, occasional Socceroo, Brandon Borello. Mm. Come a fair way since he was playing with them in the uh, Bundesliga 2. <laughs> and promoted in the 2015-16 season. Never won the, uh, the the top flight in Germany. So we'll keep an eye on Freiburg. All right, boys, uh, why don't we wrap it up there um, and sort of bring to an end the era of box-to-box Mark 1 and uh, and, uh, and and crack the the, uh, the champagne over the, the, the hull of uh, box-to-box Mark 2 from, from next week onwards. Sounds good. All right, Derek, I'll bring thank the you. Champers. Absolutely. Derek, thank you. Thanks, gents. A pleasure as always. And enjoy your weekend, Willem. Thank you, Rob. Will do. Plenty of uh, plenty of football on. Looking forward to uh, looking forward to Manchester United, who are on the uh, the one thirty uh, our time game, and looking forward to the Australia Cup semi finals in particular. That's your hip pocket speaking. And by the way, just a little shout nah. out to Willem. Congratulations in in one of your other roles. Um, if you're tuning into SEN, uh, the sports network around Australia, that Willem was hosting um, the Premier League coverage on the weekend. So uh, if you recognise that voice when you're tuning in, um, outstanding job, Willem.
Thank you, Rob. And on again uh, this weekend from 11.30, we've got the EPL show for half an hour with uh, with Damian Watson and myself. And then we've got uh, we've got two matches for broadcast. Uh, we have got, I'll just draw it up here. We've got, uh, I don't know the first one, which probably isn't a good sign. And then we do have uh, Palace Man United at 1.30. Beautiful. All right. Well done, Willem. Um, we'll be tuning in. And Damo, thank you again. And Edge, we'll, we'll talk to you uh, next week. Um, and I hope you, our listeners, join us next week. Please subscribe to Box to Box wherever you get your podcasts. Follow us on Twitter and like us on Facebook, and make sure you join us next week when we go from one end of the pitch to the other in the World Game.